Sharing your story is a courageous and powerful choice, and today's guest, Ellie Nash, is committed to empowering others to share their stories through Mic Drop, an organization designed to help people harness the power of storytelling. Ellie shares some of his story, including how he overcame sex addiction and more. The Legendary Marriage Podcast begins now. If you're feeling more like roommates than soulmates, it's time for the Legendary Marriage Podcast. Every couple wants to have a great marriage, but the trials and challenges of life pull us in different directions. So we talk with amazing couples who share their stories and incredible experts who share their wisdom about building a life together. And at the end of every show, we give you a conversation starter so you and your spouse can build more intimacy and connection in your marriage by having conversations that matter. Welcome to the show. This is episode 155. We're Danielle and Justin, your hosts. And in this episode... We're talking to Ellie Nash, and he's talking about the power of storytelling. Okay, I have to share with you guys a story. Oh, boy. Um, So when I was a kid, my favorite story was called Pierre by Maurice Sendak. And the moral of the story... Well, it wasn't really the moral of the story, but he said it like 500 times in the story was... I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. And I would read this story over and over and over and over. And it was just like, it was my mantra. Yeah. And at the this end of the... This explains a lot. I know. But at the end of the story, the moral was, I care. But I just kind of forgot about that you, part. You'd skip to like the last page or what? <laughs> I think I would skip the last page because uh, I feel like I really embrace that. I don't care or like go with the flow kind yeah. of mantra. And so storytelling is really powerful. Oh, because that that story made just you like, dead inside. Maybe. <laughs> that is powerful. That is powerful, yeah. Did you have a story that you loved as a kid? Where the Wild Things Are. Hey, they're both by Marie Sendak. Mm. Is that why we're soulmates? Yes. Oh, honey. It makes a lot of sense that you would like Where the Wild Things Are. I always thought that was a weird story. It is. <laughs> okay, so today on the show, we have Ellie Nash, and man, does he have a crazy story. Oh, yeah. He's talking about... um how he overcame sex addiction and the wild journey that ensued as he was trying to pursue, pursue his healing. So, um, and a story about how he, uh, manipulated a situation where he got to be close to his, um, soon to be wife. The way he met and and (laughs) proposed to his wife and everything is just amazing. I love hearing couple stories and how they met. So let's get to this story with, Ellie Nash. All right. Well, we are so happy to have Ellie Nash on the show today. He is a TEDx speaker and he is all about getting everyday people to share their stories, the power of storytelling through his um, mic drop program. And he has his wife, Freda, and he has two little, little ones, 15 months and two months, and they are newly married just about two years here. And so we, I feel like we get the perspective from a newlywed today yeah. on this show. Ellie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I heard great things. 
Ellie, I want to know, so you are all about the storytelling um, and the power that is storytelling. Um, do you think everybody has an interesting story? Absolutely. Everyone has one kick-ass speech in them. That's for yeah. Sure. Yeah. If they're willing to go there, absolutely. Everyone does. What if they just have like a growing up years? It's like mom and dad, they stayed married and they just have one brother and one sister and a dog and they grew up in suburbia and they went to college and they got the perfect job and they married oh, hold the on, perfect honey, You like, can't have a dog and not have good stories. Like <laughs> you're trying to stump the guy and like you're setting him up with like a million things. Am I right, Ellie? Yeah, but I, I don't have a dog, so I can't relate to that. But here's what oh. I would say. So I'll, I'll tell you a story for that. Uh, tell me a story about how everybody has a story. <laughs> yeah. So I was speaking to someone who was at a dinner table, and they said, well, I don't have an interesting story. I've had you know, great parents, great childhood in school. I did well in school. I got a job shortly thereafter. I got married, have kids and everything else. I kind of feel like my life's not that interesting. I don't have a story. And I said, I think that's a story a lot of people can relate to. My life's not that interesting. I don't have a story. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's it. That's the end. What does that feel like? So, meaning there's going to be a feeling that comes at some point and then talk about that. Oh my gosh. You know what, Ali? I think- Is there I... guilt associated with it? Like, what is the feeling that's, that's there? What is someone feeling when, when they say that? Or- I've had, this, I've had this feeling before um, because I I can really resonate with that for sure. Like that's how I grew up. And I don't think, I can't think of too much dramatic, you know, that ever happened to me as a kid or growing up. And I think, man, maybe I would have more impact in my life if something horrible had happened to me when I was a kid. That's an amazing story. Like that's the beginning of an amazing story. Yeah. We can take that right there. And the but amount of people who will relate to that. Even saying that, like, how could I even say that? Do you know how many people feel guilty about that? Like, that's the point, right? Because the purpose of a story, what a story does is it allows me to step into your eyes for a few minutes while you're sharing the story and imagine that happening to me. So often when we hear a story, we feel pain or we feel disgust or we feel fear, or we feel when a story is being told, we're taking on the feelings of the speaker. If the speaker is doing a good job, the storyteller is doing a good job. You know how many people will relate to that experience of I'm watching this Me Too movement explode and everyone's talking about that and I've never felt this? Mm. I had that feeling the other day. I was a beer cart girl at a golf course. Like I literally drove around all day and gave guys beer and helped them give tips, whatever, on their golfing. And I don't think I ever got sexually harassed. How weird is that? You were just oblivious to it. <laughs> or you've blocked it out. <laughs> or I blocked it out. Okay, I want to know, what do you think is the superpower to the person that can really lay down a good story? Like what kind of power do they have to be able to put that story out there? So one of the things I, I recommend to speakers and recommend to myself when I'm sharing is share something that's hard to share. Mm. After you share something several times, it wears on you and it'll also not wear on the audience, but it won't impact them in the same way. But when something's difficult for you to share, mm. the, the very first time I got up and spoke about being sexually abused, the point I was trying to make I, I was six years ago when I spoke at the time I was 28 and my abuse took place from the ages of eight to 10. So this mm -hmm. is 20 years later. And I was uh, extremely emotional during this talk. So forget what I said, 
just how difficult it was for me to get the words out, I think I communicated my point very clearly. That mm -hmm. my point was that being sexually abused as, as a child is a lifelong sentence. Not in the sense that someone should feel bad for themselves, but that the impact is real. And I was trying to communicate that. And what better way than just to show how difficult it was for me to talk about something that happened 20 years ago? What made you finally that... decide to share about it? What made you finally decide to tell that story about how you were abused as a kid? I'll go into, I'll go into a little bit of that story okay. of what made me decide to share. So first, I had a painful fear of public speaking. That's one. And I knew I had to get over that fear. It was just affecting me in business and affecting me in a lot of ways. And I challenged myself and said, I have to get over this fear. But the second, that's overall why I decided to speak. It occurred to me one day that if one of our most powerful tools is our voice and I didn't have the ability or I didn't think I had the ability to use it in front of more than three people at a time, I was kind of handicapped. It would be no different than walking around with a sling on one arm. And the amount of people who walk around with a fear of public speaking, it's, out, it's outrageous to me now that I've gone through it, that I, at one point in time, I rationalized it like, oh, it's okay to have a fear of public speaking. Yeah, I'm just, I can't get up at my friend's wedding and give a toast no matter how much they mean to me. And that's okay. I can't get up at a funeral and get You're diminishing up. your impact is what you're saying. You, yeah, you're quasi impotent. I don't know any other way to say it. It's, <laughs> it's one of the most powerful tools we have is our voice and to not be able to use it I said, I want, to, I, I want to. Now, in terms of this specifically, I grew up in a very orthodox Jewish community in Brooklyn. And as I started um, trying to get resolution for my own abuse, which what that looked like was A, coming to terms with the fact that it really affected me, and B, trying to get a meeting with my abuser, because I was told that would be very healing. And it turned wow. out to be healing. Oh, it did. That sounds yes. horrifying. Did It, it was a multi-year process but eventually I got him to a therapist's office in, in Miami. And what I noticed wow. through this process was how difficult it was. And the reason I, the reason it was difficult is because the people I was calling to help weren't saying, Oh, I'll help you. Like, yeah, you've gone through a lot. Let me see how I can assist you. Most people just were misunderstood. Why are you bringing something up from 20 years ago? Just move on. This guy's now mm -hmm. with a wife and kids. You want to destroy his life and everything else. What do you got to bring up stuff from 20 years ago? And I was like, that's the point. I don't want to bring up stuff from 20 years ago. It's coming up in my life because that's yeah. what sex abuse does to someone. And finally, I said, you know what? I just got to share this on a, a much larger, much larger scale. And that's what I did. I, we, I put on my own awareness event with the charity that helped me. It's called Jewish Community Watch. It's an organization that combats and brings awareness to child sex abuse focused on the Jewish community. And I said, I want to do an awareness event where I'm, the, where I'm one of the speakers. And a few hundred people came. We recorded everything. We put the stuff out there. And um, I saw the feedback that came to me. And what happened was, was all the messages that I started getting from people or people on the street saying, hey, I heard you speak about this. This happened to me as well. And that's what really got me hooked on the first one I did. Like I said, I, I felt the need to. And then afterwards, I saw the power of it. And yeah. it's it really converts something from a negative to a positive. Did anyone look at you? You said you were contacting these people from your past to try to get this meeting arranged. Was anybody reluctant just because, you know, they never helped you back then or they were oblivious to it back then or they were complicit to it or anything like that? Was there any shame as far as the 
the Jewish community, the church community that you were contacting that they were like, uh, let's, uh, let's not bring this up. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot, you know, I went, I found out that after he abused me, I, I looked into where his life took him. And at one point in time, he was a dorm counselor. So I called the school where he was a dorm counselor. And I said, I suggest you look into this. And they got very defensive and they said, okay, we'll look into it. I called back the next week and I said, did you look into whether there were any other um, victims? I said, yeah, we looked into it. There was no one else. Thanks. And afterwards I wasn't able to get anyone on the phone. And I was, you know, that was, that was one. Another was um, he, later on in life, he became a paramedic. So I called um, the group he worked with. There's a, a uh, what do you call it? A volunteer paramedic. So I called the group he worked with. And what I saw them do was kind of astonishing and maybe one of the most hurtful stuff, especially considering that that's what they do, right? They're meant to care about people. And what they did is they suspended him for a week, kept it super, super quiet, didn't publicize it, went to a therapist, paid a therapist several thousand dollars, give him a stamp of approval that he's okay. So when I called him up, I said, who is this therapist who gave him a stamp of approval that he's healthy? So he gave me the name. I, so I called him. I left a message. I said, if you're giving stamp of approvals for people's health, can I get one? Like I'm, I'm not doing well here. Like, can you, can you give me, a, can you give me a hand? He never called me back. So I was seeing some of those things, but I was determined to, to make it happen. And this organization, Jewish Community Watch, what they resorted to was public exposure. And when the threat of public exposure was hanging over his head, that's when he and his family um, made sure that he had the meeting with me. And the meeting was very, was very healing, very therapeutic. It changed everything because. What I saw as this powerful monster who dominated me um, years before physically and sexually mm -hmm. now uh, was kind of a pathetic guy. I don't, I don't know any other way to say it. At one point in time, he turned to me. It was after a couple hours of discussions, and I told him I want him to pay $500 towards my therapy. I spent a lot more than that on my therapy, but I wanted him to... You know, thankfully, I've, I've, I've built up a nice business and I, I wasn't in need of, of the money, but I was in need of his acknowledgement that it affected, that mm -hmm. what he did affected me. And mm -hmm. during the session, he pulled out his checkbook and he said, can I write you another check? Because he had already written the $500 check. He's like, can I write you another check? Can I do something more? And this was in between, in between tears. He's like, can I do anything more for you? And I thought about it for a while. And that gap between his request and my answer it felt like this guy needs something from me and it just, it shifted. And I feel mm -hmm. like a healing set in after that and a combination of um, wanting others to feel the same and a responsibility to share it that carries me as well. And why I continue talking about it. Mm. How does wow. something like that show up as you're developing relationships? I know you're married now. You've been married for a couple of years. Like how does abuse as a child specifically sexual abuse, like how does that show up, you know, like you said, 20, 25, 30 years later um, to affect your current day? Yeah. So I, I, it's definitely different for different people. But one of the things I've repeated many times is that if you want to understand what sexual abuse does to someone, don't ask someone who's gone through it, ask their spouse. Mm. I, yeah. In, in my own case, um, I was so – there were two parts. One was an incredibly low self-esteem. I didn't believe that anyone really liked me. I was concerned that everyone wanted to use me. So in relationships, it was very, very difficult to, to connect with someone. I had a lot of walls around me. Um, in other – sexually, it, it creates all sorts of problems for people. You know, a lot of people wonder what sexual abuse is 
as well. Uh, one way I like to, to answer that is if someone's sexuality was abused. Right? So for example, a six-year-old kid who stumbles on pornography has seen things. No one abused him sexually. No one even introduced him to, to it. But let's say he stumbled on his uncle's porn collection. Something will happen in that interaction where his sexuality will be abused. And it manifests itself in different ways. More recently, you mentioned my TED Talk. My TED Talk is called Escaping Porn Addiction. And that was one way it manifested itself for me was as a sex addiction. And that doesn't do well in relationships at all. Yeah. Now, what? when did you realize like, okay, my watching porn has become out of control? Like, how did you know it wasn't just like, hey, I'm a young guy and, you know, I look at porn and, you know, it's just normal. Like, how did you know it was a problem? When I tried to stop. I always wanted to stop. You see, you see in my TED Talk, I talk about that. And yeah. it was a commitment I made to myself. But when I really said, I'm, I'm done, 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 I'm stopping. And I couldn't stop. Then that's when, um, that's when I realized. Porn also often doesn't stop at porn. Porn progresses uh, for many people. And it progresses in the style, the frequency, and the type of porn, and also wanting to do some of those things in public, right? So strip clubs weren't uncommon for me and other kind of sexual acting out behaviors. So it just became, I had a transactional relationship, a transactional relationship with sex. It made the most sense to me to happen in a transaction, that whether is... the transaction of porn or the transaction of, right? Intimacy and sex were completely separate from each other. Mm, that is... I love the way you put that. And it also makes me shudder, but like a transactional relationship with sex. And I, and I think that's something that's so, um, I think every guy can resonate with that in some way or another. Everybody can. Sure. I think it's something, it's a, it's a perspective on sex and sexuality. That's, that's kind of grown in our culture, uh, over the, I mean, it always, but in a new way, uh, in the last decade or two. But it makes sense if you were saying like you had all these walls up, you didn't want to let anybody in. If sex was just a transaction, yeah. it wasn't like, a, you know, an intimacy thing. It wasn't a connection thing. It was just a, a high, uh, an orgasm or whatever it was. And then on to the next thing. But a relationship is also opening yourself up to someone, right? And there's that risk that you get hurt by them. But if there's a pattern of being disappointed and being hurt by others. And that's, that's what I share about. The way I, the way I noticed that me being abused sexually as a child was affecting me was that when I started my business, I was getting a lot of requests from people in different ways. It would be charities reaching out to me, asking for help. Many I wanted to give to and I gave, but many I didn't want to give to and I gave. I had employees asking for uh, more money or more time off or more less responsibilities and I couldn't bring myself to say no. And I had a lot of people asking me for loans and I would just, I, I had an inability to say no to them. And when I noticed, after a couple of times of getting taken advantage of, I was speaking to a friend about it. And I said, I know it's not my intelligence because I want to say no. Like my brain wants to say no, it just, it doesn't come out of my mouth. I say yes. So it's not, it's not a cognitive process that's off. Like I, I'm not mm -hmm. seeing someone for who they are. Like I knew this guy was going to screw me. I had a pit in my stomach when I sent him the money, but I did it anyway. So he referred me to a therapist and within 15 minutes of sitting down with me, the therapist asked me if I was sexually abused. He was the first person who asked and the first person I told. Wow. Hmm. He knew that your excessive amount of yeses was an indication you were abused. So 
um, I'm, I'm sure there was more that was coming off than um, just what I was saying. Yeah. But the pattern of a lack of assertiveness and probably the way I was speaking and presenting myself and everything else, having had a lot of people who were abused walk through his office because he's a a trauma therapist, so he deals with a lot of those kind of stuff. But to say specifically sexual abuse and ask me those questions, he said he just knew right away. As he was sitting down with me, he knew right away. And I know what he means now because um, being on the other side of that, not as a therapist, but as someone who oftentimes I'll speak at an event and afterwards someone will walk over to me. As they start talking, a picture forms in my mind and I found that it's usually right. One is that if they're walking over to me, they have an experience with it, obviously, but sometimes it could be they themselves or a family member. And I'll usually know right as they start talking, which one it falls into. There's just a certain, I don't know if the mannerism speaking styles, but it affects us. It affects us in major, major ways. And the therapist obviously is a hell of a lot better than me at it. And within mm-hmm. 15 minutes, he asked me the question point blank. And my next three, four hours of conversations with him over a few weeks were to determine whether he was asking me that as kind of a, it was my first time in a therapist's, well, I shouldn't say my first time, but it was my first time walking voluntarily into a therapist's office. As a child, it was some forced ones, but this was voluntarily walking into a therapist's office where the, I, I was wanting to know, is this a checklist that you go through? Like, did this happen? Did that happen? Did that happen? Or did that happen? And that's why you asked me the question? Or was there something I was manifesting itself? Because that it was, or was it something I was manifesting that made you ask that question because it was something I was manifesting then this idea I had in my head that I can just get over it and keep telling myself to get over it wasn't working and I had to get through it. And now we interrupt this episode of the legendary marriage podcast to bring you a word from our sponsors us. (laughs) All right. So we know that communication is the hardest part of marriage, right? Yeah. And the story goes something like this. You talk about the bills, crushing the chores, keeping the kids alive. But it feels like you become really good roommates, not the soulmates you were when you got married. Maybe the busyness of life and the trials and challenges of raising a family have just worn you down. Maybe you're just more comfortable having transactional conversations instead of passionate, transformational, exciting ones. Oh, the good news is that by making seven small shifts, you can get on the same page and have conversations that matter and then infuse more intimacy and connection into your marriage. Oh yeah. So what are those shifts? We've spent more than a decade researching and working with couples to distill down the seven most powerful shifts that couples can make to build more intimacy and connection. Nobody else is teaching this stuff at any price. And this free resource is available now at legendarymarriage.com slash seven secrets, the number seven secrets. And the good news is you can make these shifts, just break out of that roommate zone and transform your marriage without making your spouse sit through some boring workshop, endless counseling sessions, or sitting knee to knee naked in some weird sweat lodge, braiding each other's hair and holding hands while a bunch of people sit around staring at you singing Kumbaya. Was that just us? Awkward. (laughs) So grab this free resource today at legendarymarriage.com slash seven, the number secrets and start building a life, a love and legacy together today. And now back to the show. I'm wondering too, like, as you said, you were eight to 10 when your abuse happened. Um, did you ever, did your parents ever know about it? Did your siblings <clears throat> ever know about it? You just, no, 
Kept it to yourself. Kept, never told anyone. What made you keep it to yourself instead of like telling your parents? Shame, fear, disgust. There's a lot of disgust associated with it. That's, mm-hmm. there's a lot, but. Because um, I'm wondering, we have a lot of parents, of course, course, that listen to this. I wonder if there's any way, like looking back, like now you're a parent, like, is there anything you know to look out for if you're, kid might be you know keeping quiet about something that they shouldn't i would guess you know i'm not a um i'm not a parent for long my oldest is 15 months but i would mm-hmm. guess that th- there had to have been a dramatic change I don't, I don't know the answer to this but i can't imagine that that day i went over to this guy's house and he abused me for the first time there wasn't a shift in my behavior but um maybe being one of nine kids and a family a home with a lot of stress and not a lot of money no one picked up on that, mm. but you know, if, if, if you heard me uh, just a few minutes ago, I said, I did tell the first person who asked. So, so you uh, think no one ever someone, asked me the question. Someone would have asked you a lot earlier. You would have revealed it. You know, I'm surprised. Um, one of the things it does to people is anger and anger doesn't always manifest itself. Um, like very clearly as anger, it comes out in a lot of different ways often, but I had a, a very passive aggressive and a lot, a lot, a lot of anger. And um, the way it really showed itself with me was extreme temple, temper flare-ups every so often, mm-hmm. right? So maybe twice a year, but it was to the point of, you know, real extreme stuff. And at 13 years old, I got into a fight with a kid in a kid in my class, he, I was sitting down on my chair and he pulled the chair out. You know, that silly game. Yeah. And I fell down on the floor. And the next thing I remember was I was being pulled off of him by two people. And when they brought me into the principal's office, I said, I don't remember what happened. I blacked out. I just, I remember falling hmm. and that's all. I don't remember anything afterwards. And they sent me to a, th- and the, the school mandated that I have to go to therapy. And I'm still surprised that the therapist never <laughs> didn't ask me, what's going on or did something happen? It wasn't going on then. It had ended mm-hmm. for a few years by then, but I'm kind of surprised that I wasn't asked, asked that question. So I think for parents listening, um, it's not a hundred percent. There are plenty of people who were asked and said otherwise, but I think those two things of being connected enough to notice a change, A, and B, asking the question point blank. Yeah. People may, I, th- I really think I would have answered. I honestly think if anyone would have asked me, someone on the street, the teacher, a friend, if anyone would have asked me at any point in time, were you sexually abused? I think I would have said no. And my proof for that is the first person who asked, I didn't even wait. I said, yes. I think because our sexuality is so, so it's such a part of, of who we are. I think asking someone that question and, and I think it would be near impossible to not respond react answer it if it's happened to you right so i think what you mean is answer it non-verbally you need something yeah. to show up i mean there's, right. there's some response that's going to come up oh, yes yes like i i've never known i've done a lot of work with guys over the years the stats are in it's it's the officially it's about one in six men have been sexually abused or molested at some point in their life my experience is, is more about one in four um and every single one of them, like no one has a, a truly dispassionate relationship with that abuse. So, so there's some reaction going to happen at whatever age, at 14, at four, at 40, at 62. 
So you noticed that rage was coming up in you. When did you start really keying into the pornography thing as, as something that was just part of your life? The, the pornography was always there. It started with, you know, routine magazines, J. Cruz and Land's End and stuff, you know, lingerie sections and progressed to um, Sports Illustrated and uh, Victoria. So when Secret. you were a teenager. And when the, like it was at a very young age, 11, 12, I was already starting with whatever was in front of me. And um, I guess late 90s, we got a computer with internet. Yep. And yeah, really traumatic period of my childhood. Dial-up internet. Those pictures loading so damn slowly. Oh my gosh! Yes. Once one time. Come on, <laughs> mom. We need a faster modem. <laughs> Why? Never mind. <laughs> once it went, once it went to high speed, it was it was the yeah. high speed internet. It was done, and then you know progressed from there. And then say, hey, if I'm watching it on, on, I remember my first time going to a strip club, and I was just like, wow, this is this is everything here. Mm-hmm. Now, when did you, you said when you went to stop the whole porn thing, you couldn't stop. Like, how did it come about that you were able to make strides and really stop the pornography addiction? Like, how do you even go about that? I know some of our listeners are listening to this now and going, yeah, I probably, you know, porn's probably a little bit too high on my priority list. And maybe I've tried to stop you know, it's shameful. I don't want to talk about it with anybody. Like, how do I even go about stopping that cycle? Good question. Um, the best answer to that is a commitment to do whatever it takes to stop, right? So I always wanted to stop. I, say, I always wanted to stop. The first time I made a real decision that I'm done with this was when, uh, when I met my, my now wife, when we started dating. So there were two periods of time that it felt like the urge to watch porn magically left me. One was when I got into CrossFit at about 2008, 2009. I got into CrossFit and for a few months, I was obsessed with CrossFit and not so, not obsessed with porn. I was like, wow, hey, it's been a while since I've watched. That's pretty cool. And, and the other behaviors that went with it, strip clubs and the like, or even clubs and hitting on girls. I mean, it was the same idea, right? Just being steeped yeah. in that mindset. It stopped then. And then when I started dating my wife, the same thing. For a few months, the urge left me. Mm-hmm. And once it came back, um, I was like, well, I really got to stop this. I got to stop doing this. And it, it snowballed in a really bad way because when there's reason to stop, you try to stop. I mean, it's just you feel like nothing. It's like there's no accomplishment in your life that you can hang your head on after you've really committed. I'm not going to do this anymore. And you, you find, or at least for me, I found I couldn't, I couldn't stop myself. I just felt like a helpless human being. Yeah. And then from there came the commitment to do whatever it, to do whatever it takes. And I went back to therapy and I finally opened up with my therapist about this specifically. He introduced me to someone and usually the best, the best way to stop is find someone else who stopped, right? Find someone else who struggled in the same way. So for me, it became recovery groups, right? 12 step groups. And I, I went to I went to those regularly and I still do. And over there, I found people who struggled in the same way. And that focus and commitment of I'm going to do whatever it takes to stop, no matter what areas of my life it sacrifices. I was willing to give up my business. I was willing to give up my relationship. I was willing to give up friends. And as long as I don't have to break the law, I'll do it. I want to stay sober. 
It's interesting you said those two times of like uh, digging into CrossFit and then first meeting uh, Freda, that energy, the sexual interest, the energy kind of you transmuted it as, as Napoleon Hill would say. But, but like, it just, it left me magically. I think you said, uh, yeah. and, and like, we have that incredible ability as men to, to pour when something captivates us to pour all of our en- energy and attention into it and, and everything else just kind of disappears. But and, I didn't think about it. It wasn't from a place yeah. of, I'm not going to watch porn. I'm going to go to yeah. CrossFit. That was not the focus at all. I looked back a couple months later and I was like, whoa. I haven't watched in a couple of months. I've never felt this. It's interesting. So, so what, there's this old expression that goes, what we resist persists. Mm -hmm. So when we go, Hey, here's this thing. I don't want to do the 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 thing. We end up doing the thing. And so, so there's this, this psychology that says, Hey, focus on something else. What you do want. I want to be healthy. I want to be in love. I want to, yeah. So what was the thing that that you started focusing on when you made the decision, like, I'm done. Like, I'm going to do whatever it takes here. We call that a defiant decision. Yeah. Like you you make a decision. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm not, I'm going to do it. So I I think when something reaches a level of addiction, and I certainly view mine as as an addiction, right? Where there's obsessive thoughts and I'm doing it because I feel the need, the the need and desire to do it. Not because I want to, or I like to, I'd like to, it just, this overwhelming urge to is coming up. I think then it does require specific focus. A good first step is asking for help. Like mm-hmm. that's a really solid first step is reaching out to someone because what happens is, especially for me with porn addiction, it's just gripped by this shame. Like I said, feeling like this absolute, absolutely worthless human being. That's that's where I felt. It's like, well, I really want to stop this. I told myself I'm going to stop it, and I. I failed myself. I failed myself. And now there was this girl who I really loved, who I was dating, and I felt like I was betraying her in some way. And when it escalated from there, because I felt so badly about myself, and then I started returning to the other behaviors also, the strip clubs and ex-girlfriends and some of that stuff started coming up. Now I really felt like a piece of shit with her. And then I said, oh, wow, this is just spiraling out of control. I got to take one at a time, eliminate all these behaviors from me, from my life. And the hardest one was porn just because of how accessible it is. There are a lot of barriers you can put in between yourself and a strip club, but between yourself and a computer, yourself and a phone, I mean, you're there all day in front of these things. So it's really, pornography is tough, especially because of the accessibility. It sounds like a lot of things in your life just started shifting when you met Freda. Like, well, we always love to hear the story. So how did you two meet in the first place? I'll tell you the story. When I was 14 years old, my parents sent me to upstate New York for school. Okay. Um, Freda's family lived in upstate New York in Albany. So I, I met her family in school, but I was 14. She was 10, a couple sisters older than her. I didn't, I didn't know her specifically then, but I did know the family. One, uh, we were four, four buddies rooming in someone's, like boarding in someone's home to go to the school. One night they had a flood and something, a toilet or a bathtub or something like the whole basement was flooded and we had to find a place to go. Freda's parents invited us in and we stayed a couple nights over there. We got to know them a little bit afterwards. Sometimes on weekends they would invite us. And I had this memory after I left the school, I had this memory of like, wow, what a nice, what a nice family. Fast forward um, 15 years. 
I'm in Miami, living in Miami. I'm in the synagogue and I run into this guy who's Freda's brother. We start chatting and like I said, I had fond memories of his family, especially putting this up in their home for a couple of days, complete strangers. And um, he asked me, can I stay by you for a night? So of course I was gonna return the favor. While we we're talking, he's like, hey, do you mind if I crash by your place? I said, sure. He crashed my place for a night. I enjoyed it. We became friendly. We ended up living together for about a year. During that time, I got to, I got to know Freda, and rest is. I before before we started dating, I think it's a little weird, but it's what happened. Before we started dating, I woke up two mornings. I've never said this, before. <laughs> I've said this before, but oh, uh, this is when you know there's a good story coming. You've never <laughs> said it. It's scary and weird. Okay, let's do it. So I woke up two mornings in a row. Um, saying, I, I'd spoken to her on the phone a couple times just while she was on the phone with her brother and, you know, her saying, Hey, it's cool. Whatever, you know, nothing, not a one-on-one conversation. And I woke up mumbling the words loud enough for me to hear Freda, don't hurt me. Oh, and I was like, what? In a row. <laughs> yeah. And I, in a lot of ways, that was my biggest fear was that getting hurt by someone. That was my experience in all relationships. And a few weeks later, I told her that I was in New York on business, which wasn't really true. <laughs> uh, she was going to be in New York. And I said, oh, I happen to be in New York at the time. Do you want to go out? She claimed she had no idea it was me asking for a date. And <laughs> I, did, I went about it much differently than I've ever gone about every date. You know, I was told, you read the books and everything else is like, play super cool. Don't show you're too into her. Better. I did exactly the opposite. The only part that I showed super cool was that I said, oh, I happen to be in business. Why don't we go out? But um, I booked, I flew into New York. I, I booked a, a room at a hotel. On a last minute ticket that was super yes. expensive <laughs> because <laughs> you weren't going to go. <laughs> I, 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 booked a tic- I booked a room um, at a, a hotel right in front of Central Park. I called a date for eight o'clock. I told her the date was seven. So I picked her up. We took a walk in Central Park for an hour. When we got... Um, when we got to the restaurant, I had ordered a bouquet of flowers and there was a poem I had written on this thing. And I'm thinking like, this is a first freaking date, looking back at it. This wasn't my MO at all. Shock and, and awe. Yeah, it was yeah, exactly, was exactly the cards opposite. Out there. Yeah, I, just, I went all in. Um, she claimed, she, like I said, she didn't, know, she didn't know it was a date. She just <laughs> thought it was hanging out with her brother, you know, friend of her brother. When she uh, saw the flowers, was she uh, clued in? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at, at that point she knew. Um, I think she knew right when I picked her up, right? I, that just the energy I, you, between me and you. I mean, you can have her on at some point if she ever decides to share share her side of the story. But um, I think she knew, and she's just telling me she didn't know, just to excuse the way she was dressed. But you know, I came all <laughs> I came all dressed up. <laughs> she wanted to be comfortable. I came all dressed up, and she was in like leggings or something. But anyway, it was cool and. Uh, she said uh, that after the date, um, we went upstairs to uh, our hotel room. Her brother was in town also, so we were all just hanging out. And she said just the three of us just sitting in the room talking. And um, she said in her mind, like right then, the thought that went through her head was, I'm going to marry this guy. And then I mm-hmm. asked her, I said, she was supposed to leave the next morning. I said, will you extend your ticket? And Despite the thought going through her head, her words were, no, I think I'm going to go back to L.A. <laughs> and she flew back to L.A. So, and 
eventually a few weeks later, we went out again. We went yeah. to Chicago for a weekend and the rest is kind of history. A few ups and downs, a few major disappointments. And we got married in August of 2017. So, Woo! so what is it about this woman that you were like, I'm going to fly to New York for a chance at a date for fake business. Her fake business. And then she was like, where's your meeting? I'm, so I'm going to give you the, I'm going to give you the, I don't know. She didn't even ask that. I'm going to, I don't think she came in that, that interested at all. So I'm going to give you three different answers. Like kind of the, sure. you know, three different possible one um, on a purely egotistical, like guy level. Um, her, I overheard her brother say like, Hey, I think you should date Ellie. He's a, he's a good guy. And she knew, and he knew she was single and she said, he's not my type. So that's on a purely guy level. When you hear that, that's like, Whoa, okay. What do you mean? Not we'll type? see about that. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> so she wasn't my type until I heard that. Right. I'm going to be your type. <laughs> that's on a perfect guy level on a spiritual level. Yeah. Um, there's like, I just felt it, right? I felt something different about her. I went about the whole date from the beginning very differently. And the almost the only way to explain it is like fate or serendipity, like we we're meant to be together and, you know, to wake up in the morning. And those are the first thoughts on my mind. And I'm saying it to myself. Like, it's like I was in a dream saying it. And I woke up hearing myself say it two mornings in a row. That's kind of freaky stuff. Yeah. So second and the third, um, you know, when I look at my other patterns with women, I was like, I mentioned like all these walls around me. So I probably had much less of a fear of rejection around her than I did around just an average girl walking up and rejection, fear of rejection can manifest itself in two ways. One is I won't approach. And the second is if I do approach, I won't be that vulnerable. I'll just be super mm -hmm. macho. And I think I, I guess just practically her brother was living with me and I kind of became part of the family in that way. She was definitely going to let me down softly. So she wasn't going to say, oh, you're creeping me out. So <laughs> I, oh. I think those three should satisfy any explanations. Yeah. I love, I love too that. And the, the, when you went back in time to when you were a child and you went off to school in New York and then you stayed with her family, it was like one of your very best memories of your childhood was with her and her family. So it's like in a time where everything was going crazy and there was so much pain and you said anger and some other stuff, the, she and her family were the bright light of that time. And then when you come back and you're like, you're, you've been part of my bright light since I was 13 years old. Like how, how would I not like lean into that? Right. I, I didn't credit her for that. Yeah. So she also comes from a large family. So, you know, also one of nine. Uh, when you're 14 and a girl is 10, it doesn't work quite as smoothly as 26 and 22. Sure. And she also has two sisters between her and me, right? Like age-wise. So she wasn't on the radar at all then, but certainly from the family perspective, absolutely. Like I had a very, um, very strong appreciation for this family who helped us out. And there were these memories in my, in my mind, it's like, wow, what, what a great family for doing this for me. And now they're your family. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so now you've been together for, you said, like, close to five years now, right? 
Is that right? Since 2012. Yeah. So seven years now. Seven years. What is it that uh, you love most about Freda? She's going to love to hear this part. <laughs> you know what I should do? So one of her, her complaints with me is that I don't, um, I don't express my affection that well. And I don't know if it's because I don't express it or just her family does a really good job of it. Mm. Um, so just by comparison, I don't do such a good job, but, uh, when, so she says that I, I don't express in general, like what it is I like about her. So, um, at our, when I proposed to her, it was just kind of very emotional. It was in a restaurant and I posed her and I didn't say anything then. And she was like, you didn't tell me why you love me. You didn't tell me why you marry me, why you want to marry me. So at the wedding, I wrote a poem. Well, Ellie, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Okay. I want to know how can our listeners find you and what you're up to? Because I know you've got lots of different places we can jump in with you. Yeah. So myself, I'm probably most active on Instagram. It's Eliyahu, which is my full Hebrew name, underscore Nash, N-A-S-H. So it's E-L-I-Y-A-H-U underscore Nash. That's for myself. But in terms of what I'm doing with Mic Drop, which is uh, what I'm most passionate about is giving people the avenue to tell their story and uh, both the training and a platform for people to share their own personal story. If someone thinks that their story is too boring, let's, let's test it out, reach out to us. Let's see if, let's see how boring it is and let's see if we can make it interesting enough for others. We have a, a YouTube channel that's called Mike Drop with Rosh Lowe. Rosh Lowe is my partner at Mike Drop, a former news reporter. And he was the public speaking coach that I used start speaking. So eventually we, we, we formed the company together. So that channel has most of our talks that we put out there and a lot of good talks. So someone Including just wants to your go TED out. Talk that's so famous. Yes. So my, my Ted talk is on their channel on Ted's channel on uh-huh. our channel. We have other, our talks, which we put out there. So it's talks about everything, everything from addiction to loss, to, um, feeling like you don't have a story, just, some sort of message, anything. Power of story. I love that that everybody's got a story in them. Sometimes when we invite couples to come on the show and share their story, they have that same response. Like, oh, ours is just boring. We don't have anything cool. And then within two seconds of being on the show, they've dropped this crazy story. (laughs) And you're like, come on, please. Everybody has a story. Right, that's the truth. That's the truth. The truth matters that no one really has a boring story. Yeah. Yeah. That's the truth. But for those who think they do, that itself is a story. Yes. All right. Thank you so much, Ellie. Thank you. And now the Talk About It segment of the show. Each week we challenge you to set a time with your spouse to have a conversation that matters and we give you a conversation starter. All right. Well, here's the conversation starter this week. What part of your story are you ready to share? Mm. Man, because I mean how many stories have you heard from other people? And you're like, man, that really affects me. And I'm really going to think about this or make a change or yeah, something like that. I, I think, and there's a couple of layers there. Like what's the story that you're ready to share with your spouse Yeah. or with the world? Well, that's like when you think about, about what Ellie shared and just how profoundly it's impacted him both before his sharing and after it's really remarkable. The, the power of story is amazing. That's why we love having couples. We have experts and couples come on the show and share their stories because it awakens something in each one of us listening to, to see something in our own story. And then it's, it's just this great ripple effect. 
I also have the feeling of story that I feel closer to a person when they share yes. their story. It's like they're my new best friend. It's an incredibly because they vulnerable thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's like this intoxication magnet that like draws you in like, ooh, like I'm part of your world now. I have this really like probably even delusional thing about like people that share their story. Like I really am part of their life now. You're yeah, looking at you're me. You're sounding like a stalker. You're looking at me like I'm crazy. A little bit. <clears throat> I know where you but, sleep. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it for today's show. Grab your copy of The Seven Secrets of Legendary Marriages over at legendarymarriage.com slash seven secrets. You're really just going to go on people thinking I'm a creeper? I, I mean, everybody knows it. There's nothing to... <laughs> Nothing to hide. Nothing to hide here. All right. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show <laughs> so we know how we're doing and other couples can find us. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of the Legendary Marriage Podcast. This is Danielle and Justin reminding you. Don't settle for an ordinary marriage. Make yours legendary. Okay, no, don't do that. Come on, try it again. Don't settle for an ordinary marriage. Make yours legendary. Much better. Not creepy. <laughs>